Welcome back, everybody. It's Mark Steiner right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And this is the Mark Steiner Show, and it's Thursday, which means it's Sound Bites, our weekly look at food, the environment, and our energy systems uh, around the state and around the country. A significant case was settled here in the state of Maryland by the Attorney General, here in in, in, in Maryland's Attorney General, of course, a lawsuit with power plant operators um, around nitrogen pollution. So we're joined by Brian Frosch, Attorney General for the state of Maryland, uh, Frederick Tutman, who is Patuxent Riverkeeper, uh, and and Philip Musagas, who is uh, Legal Director for Potomac Riverkeeper Network, uh, some of the folks who originally brought the lawsuit along with Food and Water Watch. And gentlemen, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Brian, let me let me start with you. Since uh, this was a, when it, when it came out in the paper, this um, the, the, this clearly was a lawsuit. You you ended up fighting in court uh, with NRG Energy Subsidiaries, uh, subsidiaries, subsidiaries um, for the Chalk Point Station in Prince George's County and the Dickerson Station in Montgomery. So, give us tell us what happened. So, uh, both power plants were out of compliance with their permits to discharge pollution into the Patuxent and Potomac rivers. Uh, They claim, and I think correctly, that the requirements that the state established pursuant to the Healthy Air Act a number of years ago uh, created problems they didn't anticipate in terms of their water pollution uh, permits. And they exceeded their permits by tens of thousands of pounds, mostly of nitrogen. There was a little bit of phosphorus. Um, but over a four- or five-year period, they added 30,000 pounds of uh, nitrogen to those two rivers that was in violation of their permits. So lawsuit was filed before I took office, and uh, we've been working on it since I was sworn in in, in 2015. So what? Just for, for, so our listeners understand, what was the argument against the, by the by the by the plaintiffs or by, by the defendants? Well, they said I think their main argument was, "Look, the permit's too tough. We should get a break," and uh, we were we were unwilling to do that. The uh, the the violations were significant. The penalties were were significant. Ultimately, they agreed to pay a penalty to the state of a million dollars. They agreed to do a million dollars worth of remediation environmental projects, and uh, they are going to upgrade their plants substantially so that they remain in compliance with their their permits. And uh, they estimate the cost to be $5 million a plant. I think the Department of Environment estimates the cost to be about $3 million a plant. So it's a the costs are pretty steep for NRG. So I'm going to come back to the, when you said they're steep and what that might mean, um, and some of the arguments people, my people have against that. But 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 Fred Tubman, let me take it back a little history, and 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 uh, maybe you and Philip can kind of outline a bit about how this actually started. Well, let me clarify that this is a plant, and the 12 years I've been a riverkeeper has almost always been out of compliance somewhere for something. <laughs> and we've been involved in multiple litigation with these folks. Moreover, they're responsible for what some people think is the worst environmental man-made catastrophe in, in Maryland history. What does that mean? 11,000-gallon oil spill into Swanson Creek next to the plant. It was built in 1969, and this is a plant you know, that was, you know, it was built when, frankly, 8-track tapes were, 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 pretty, were pretty hot ticket. So, in a sense, they're on a payment plan, right? We keep getting fines and penalties on this outfit. And they keep going into compliance, and I'm sure we'll see them again. So this got started when they initially tried to settle their uh, issues, their uh, pollution issues, uh, by promoting the idea that they could do a pollution trade. That's how we got into this issue. Opposing the idea of a pollution trade. They were proposing to continue uh, blowing their permit by, I think it was 40 times a day. Uh, Phil, you may correct me if I'm wrong, but I think for about two years on a daily basis, they were putting excessive loads of nitrogen into the Patuxent River. Their proposal was to either lower those discharges on the other plants that they owned in the Potomac, because I think that was less expensive for them, or to execute some kind of a trade with a Southern, a southern Maryland farmer who would plant some crops and allow them to keep on, uh, you know, basically to offset 
their pollution loading on the Patuxent. And we thought that was a really bad proposition. Eventually, the trade was um, withdrawn as a proposal, and then it became a straightforward enforcement action. You know, where again, citizens are pushing really hard to get these folks to stop burdening the river with their various mm-hmm. pollution excesses. To me, there's nothing cooperative you know, about any of this. I mean, the, the newspapers are kind of reporting this as a victory in the sense that they're going and making these adjustments. But what was their first clue? That they had to upgrade and improve this plant, you know, after, what is it, 40 years, 30-some years, something like that, um, where the technology has greatly changed, right? And the efficiencies that they could get in order to, uh, you know, deal with these problems on the river, you know, where we have, what, death by a thousand cuts, a million cuts, I, right. I think the Attorney General has said. He's Absolutely. probably right. So in a bigger picture, and to me, this is like yet another stop in the road where we're still trying to drag these folks kicking and screaming into compliance in the modern day. And so, and Philip, yeah, and I think is this Philip? Sure, if go I ahead. can just add to that, Philip, go ahead. Yeah, um, yes, I think I, I agree with everything Fred said. I think it's um, you know it's important for the public to know that, that you know uh, Patuxent Riverkeeper and Potomac Riverkeeper were, and Food and Water Watch were involved early on um, with the with the pollution trading issue. Then we uh, our groups actually filed the initial. Uh, it's basically a legal warning letter. It's known as a notice of intent letter under the Clean Water Act. Uh, which started the legal process that led to uh, the attorney general filing its lawsuit against uh, against NRG. So, you know, we we play an important role here that I think the public sometimes is not aware of, and that, you know, we use federal environmental laws like this, um, and we have these citizen suit uh, opportunities. And the goal of that is, is really pretty simple. It's uh, we can file a lawsuit in federal court in, like we did in this case, or we threatened to in this case, uh, and that puts the polluter and it puts the government on notice uh, that pollution is ongoing and that permits are being violated and uh, and it gets the government involved. And so, you know, fortunately, we we had uh, the attorney general of Maryland get involved here and and we stayed in the case. We were involved throughout the settlement process. So it's been a it's been a good example of all of us working together. But it's uh, it's a great example of, I think, how kind of the unique role that citizen groups like the Tuxton and Potomac Riverkeepers play in kind of raising awareness and, and kind of raising a red flag about pollution like this in the first place. I agree with that, Mark. Brian, go uh, ahead. I, I, really, I, I really think uh, the Riverkeepers do a, a tremendous job. And, it, you know, you can see the results uh, in this case. They, uh, they did initiate it. It was before I was attorney general, but they issued the notice of intent to sue and uh, and kick the whole thing off and uh, I'm not sure what would have happened if they hadn't done it but you can see I think a very good result as a result of their uh, initiation of the process. So that let me pick up on that Brian and then let the other two jump in with what was just said I think that this is an interesting part of the discussion to me beyond the lawsuit which we'll come right back to and and, and what this might mean also for the future which I want to get to. Um, but there's a political dynamic, I think, at work that people often forget that, that sometimes it's, it is um, activists and communities from, the outs, from outside the, the electoral process that actually push the issues that force government agencies into action to, to do the legal fights. And that, that, that's really kind of – it seems to be, Brian, a really critical piece as part of a dynamic you know, because often we can vilify um, groups that, that – are, are working for the environment and other and, and, and certain social justice issues, um, but it's a very critical role here between back and forth and how this works and how the system actually works in this case. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Um, citizen suits are a key element of environmental enforcement. I mean, look, everybody is injured when the bay is polluted, when the Potomac River, the Patuxent River are polluted, and. Uh, in a way, the citizens' groups help hold the government accountable, and it's the government's job to hold the polluters accountable. So, you know, so getting into the, the, the aspects of this, I mean, so so what is this? You know, I, I want to. I'm seeing about what you said earlier, Fred Tupman and, and Brian. I'm curious uh, and what Philip said um, about when Fred says this has been going on since like 1969. Um, so what is this? What do you think this takes us for the future? I mean, and I don't mean to. Also, they're not here to defend themselves, but I mean that that that, that this mean the industry will a no longer pollute. 
B will pay a fine but continue to pollute and the battle continues? I mean, what, 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 is this, what does this leave, us, leave and take us? Fred, you want well, to jump in? And, the, and then, then we'll come right back to Brian. Well, my read on it is this. This is an inherently polluting technology. and There's a lot of misdirection by the industry and, and, a, and a bit of fuzz and confusion, I think, at the federal level uh, in terms of how we're supposed to be regulating these plants in order to uh, reduce their burdens on the surrounding community. You know, the plant would argue, you're right, they're not here, uh, that you can make cinder blocks out of their waste stream. Well, they're not doing that. <laughs> okay. They would argue that you would rather have uh, nuclear. Well, look, they're not doing that either. You know, they argue that maybe they should uh, convert to gas. Well, again, they're not doing it. So I think it behooves new citizens to be really vigilant about these folks who buy band uniforms to the local high school and, and do a variety of works in the community to chill uh, people's feelings of antipathy towards their waste streams and their violations and their thermal footprint and the fish kills. And I mean, the list is pretty long. Uh, I think it's only a matter of time before people snap out of it and realize that no matter how much money you throw at this plant, anything short of a complete rethink about how they generate this particular uh, source of power uh, is likely to end up with more consent decrees. And this, and, and so, and Brian, what does, that, what does that put the AG's office? Well, we're the ones who are supposed to in, enforce the law. Uh, but if I can just make a comment on, Please do. on policy, I think I think it it puts into high relief the importance of looking for uh, renewable sources of electricity, of energy. And uh, it's something that Maryland has moved toward uh, for the past 15, 20 years, uh, but we need to be even more aggressive than we are now. Global warming is upon us. Global climate change is upon us. Uh, and coal plants are not the technology of the future. I think that's inescapable. Philip? And I would just briefly add to that. I mean, I think, uh, you know, again, I agree with Fred and, and, and Brian both. You know, the other, the other challenge with coal-fired power plants is, um, you know, we're struggling in this region with uh, uh, the legacy of coal ash pollution, which is the coal ash is the waste product that's produced when you burn coal. Um, it was never regulated properly by the EPA or by states really until a few years ago, and it's, we're kind of in the beginning stages of wrestling with this legacy waste product that's stored around the country at coal power plants in, uh, in leaking unlined waste pits, essentially. And that's been dealt with, again, it varies state by state, but that's been uh, that's becoming a major uh, environmental problem. We had some major spills in the south. Uh, we're dealing with uh, Potomac River Keepers dealing with a site in Virginia that has decades of, uh, of, of heavy metal leaks into a, into a tributary of the Potomac. And we have sites in Maryland that are certainly problematic. So you know, just on the coal industry in general, Fred sites are particularly a uh, bad example of a, of a coal power plant. And uh, uh, but we have the we have the ongoing operational pollution, and we have the legacy waste pollution to deal with. So there there are much better ways to generate electricity. I think we can all agree on that. So, uh, in terms of, I mean, let's come back to the very beginning here for a moment and kind of explore for our listeners the. Uh, just what this nitrogen pollution has done, and also to be clear, that when it comes to what, what, what runoff, I mean, there's a agriculture becomes number one, um, and I think the way we develop our cities and communities and runoff from our from our, our paved communities and more may becomes two, and then actually this is not the primary source of pollution, though it's a significant source. Is that fair? Well, I would disagree on the Patuxent. I don't know about the Potomac. On the Patuxent, we're losing more farms than we could possibly can spare. Whether they say blacktop is the last crop on a lot of these farms? I think that's more on the Chesapeake Bay, um, particularly the factory farms, where I think there's a regulatory problem. On the Patuxent, we've got 36 wastewater treatment plants, and we've got Chalk Point, and we've got some other industrial uh, dischargers um, that almost never are in compliance with their permits, or at least periodically exceed their uh, discharge permit. Uh, the Chalk Point plant has also had air discharge issues, which we've litigated with them over in the past as well. So there are a lot of waste streams, and as Phil points out, there's a lot of legacy that's attached to it, and there's a lot of burden on the surrounding community, particularly people in the near envelope and immediately downstream. And it's always taken regulatory or legislative action to get these folks to make these uh, upgrades. It's never been voluntary. It's always been, like I said, kicking and screaming to get these guys to control their waste, um, you know, and stop polluting the surrounding uh, neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah for, for the 
if uh, and Brian, I'll just jump in quickly. Um, you know, for the Potomac River, it's uh, you know we're facing a, a, a whole range of of impacts from point source discharges like power plants uh, with nutrients, from non-point source of stormwater pollution from urban and suburban areas carries uh, a lot of nutrients into the waterway. Um, combined sewage pollution carries nutrients in uh, in the Shenandoah Valley in the Shenandoah River, which is part of the Potomac watershed. You know, we have a 14,000 square mile watershed that we work in. Um, we have a very large impact from agriculture, uh, as you said, Mark, and that's a uh, non-point source pollution. We have cattle still being uh, grazed in the river and, you know, fecal matter going right in the river where it's, uh, that, that should have been, should have been uh, prohibited a long time ago. So we have, we have challenges on the agricultural side, on the industrial side, and, and on the urban and suburban side. So it's kind of a, uh, a, a parade of, of horribles in a way <laughs> that we're dealing with. Uh, you know, we're making progress uh, on some areas faster than others, but we're making slow progress. But in in a lot of ways, um, you know, much of the progress depends on enforcement. And, that you know, the reason for our discussion is talking about a case where uh, we took enforcement action, the state took action, and we really need more of that because there are a lot of permittees out there, a lot of facilities out there that are out of compliance, there uh, are are farms that are not complying with uh, you know with farm management plans and requirements to deal with non-point source pollution. So we have we have our work cut out for us. But enforcement is a key part of this. So g- given what the other two folks have said here, Brian, I mean, what what role again does does the AG's office play in the other issues that they were raising that could be potential for the lawsuits? Um. The one area where where we can enforce, it, or maybe I should say it's the easiest to enforce, the most straight-lined is point source pollution. Um, and that's, that's what this is. That's what we're dealing with here. But, um, you know, stormwater management is a huge issue. Uh, you, you only have to look back to Ellicott City a few weeks ago to see uh, the devastation that stormwater management, the, the lack of stormwater management can bring, and not just the infrastructure and the human toll that it can take, but it sweeps into ultimately the Chesapeake Bay, uh, as, as both Philip and, and Fred said, uh, sediment and uh, nutrients, uh, toxics, stuff that's, that's terrible for the Bay. Agriculture is another sort of, I would call it a non-point source. It's difficult to tell where the, uh, where the fertilizer uh, runs off or from what farm it runs off, but it's important uh, across the state and across these different uh, forms of pollution uh, to, to address them. Now, you know, it's not, it's not very frequent, but there is a role for our office in enforcing um, the, the rules that relate to agriculture. But in, in all of these areas, there is a, a difficulty that, that the departments face and that, that our office face, faces um, from the budget cuts that we've suffered recently, past couple of years, and in the years after 2008. The, um, the inspectors, the folks who are supposed to keep their eye on, on uh, just violations of permits in the Water Management Administration, the inspectors have seen their caseloads triple. Um, they can't get to every permit that they're supposed to see within a year, uh, let alone within five and sometimes six years. So it's, uh, there are many challenges in in enforcing the law, we need to devote the resources to it that the protection of aid deserves. So, picking up on what, what, what Fred on, on what Brian just, Brian Frost just said, I mean, I mean, there's the, there's the clearly is a political question from the past, which is when this storm water management fee was enacted, and then allowing counties in Baltimore City to kind of determine how they were going to handle it, then it being destroyed as a um, because it was there was a great political campaign against the rain tax. But clearly, whether you look at Ellicott City or this, stormwater management becomes a major issue in terms of point source pollution inside of our waterways. Um, 
And I mean that. I mean that's that's. I mean Brian was sitting on I think some really kind of very critical points there. Well, if it's true that these rivers are suffering from multiple cuts, thousands of cuts, millions, take your pick. It's probably going to take thousands of solutions and millions of solutions to uh, correct them. I think what Brian is saying is, I don't want to paraphrase or second guess him, is again the citizen role is very very important to support what the government can't do. Right? I think that's another side of this as well. The citizen vigilance and citizen involvement helps the government refine its allocation of limited resources uh, by identifying problems, by calling attention, by being the early warning system, the canary in the coal mine, or whatever metaphor you, you really want to use. But I also don't think we're going to spend our way uh, into these, uh, out of these problems, right? We can give a problem a budget like we've done with the war on poverty, crime, and terror. <laughs> and I don't know if anybody feels any safer from crime, terror, or anything else. Giving them a budget does not solve these problems. Um, it's an attempt to remediate more often than not after the problem has already occurred. And I think we have to be very, very pro- proactive. I think what Phil and I are trying to say, too, is that here's a technology that inherently pollutes, and we can be prepared for much more of it probably going forward as long as technology is extent. Um, I realize we need the electricity, and we've got to find uh, some sustainable ways to deal with it, but I think this is what we've got. This is what we're coping with, we're struggling with. The regulatory and enforcement problem up until we can find a, an actual solution. Everything else is more like a symptom <laughs> up until the time we actually attack a real problem. Philip, you want to add it to that at all before we move on? Uh, I, I agree with Fred. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, uh, the challenge here is, uh, is figuring out ways to convince polluting industries and, and you're not, not to single out energy at all here, but, uh, you know, to, to convince these industries that, that compliance is a better route than than paying the penalty and and operating under non-compliance, and that has historically been a challenge. Um, you know, oftentimes when you're talking about publicly owned corporations whose interests are primarily focused on their shareholders, uh, when they do the math, it's oftentimes it's um, it's better for them to continue in some form of violation to continue operating and deal with the penalties later than it is to really. Uh, operate properly from the beginning. And so, you know, this is, uh, again, not to, that's not, uh, I think the story with energy here was a bit more complicated than that, but uh, but that's a challenge we as water advocates uh, face all the time. And, and I'm glad Brian brought up the budget issue because uh, it's, it's an important one. <clears throat> I worked in New York State for a long time on the Hudson River, and, you know, we were constantly fighting, uh, we were supporting budget increases for inspection and enforcement by the state. Uh, it rarely happened. And, um, you know, we found ourselves as the citizen enforcers, the citizen watchdogs, kind of unfortunately having to fill the role that um, that the state sometimes could not fill. And so hopefully here we can, you know, we can work together in the future with, with the attorney general's office and bring enforcement actions, uh, you know, tie each other in, bring these enforcement actions when we can and, and improve things when we can. But these are, uh, these are long struggles and they require... Um, yeah, I think new ways of thinking long term if we're going to really address these problems and really restore the bay because we're, you know, we've been uh, 10 years now into the, I'm sorry, not 10 years, five years into the um, Chesapeake Bay uh, regional pollution limits, the, the total maximum daily load plan that EPA put out, and that uh, we're making progress in some areas, but in some areas we're really, we're really failing. And so, you know, this debate about how to restore the bay, how to control these sources of pollution is going to continue, and enforcement is a part of it, but but we need other solutions as well on the financial side, on the political side, and uh, and on the grassroots side. So as, as we round this out, and I know, <clears throat> Brian Frost, you have, to, you have to run here, but um, let, let me get a final thought from you about the significance of this, of, of what just happened, and uh, uh, for our listeners to really get a sense of that from your office. Well, I, I would say it sends a strong message. Uh, we are not going to relax our standards and allow people to pollute. We're going to hold them accountable when they do pollute. And uh, we're going to work in concert with the citizens' organizations like the Tucson and Potomac uh, River Keepers to continue to, to protect the Chesapeake Bay and hope, at least in the long run, that we can bring it back to a healthy state. Brian, I'm glad you could join us, Brian Frosch. I know you got to jump off the phone. I appreciate you taking the time today, Brian Frosch, Attorney General for the State of Maryland. Thank you so much, and thanks for uh, what you're doing for the state. Thank you, Mark. Good to talk to you. 
And Fred, Tubman, let me close out with you here. I, you, we, before we went on the air, you, I asked you a question about how this affected communities of color and poor communities um, in a larger sense. You talked about a Title VI uh, action that you all took earlier. Could you kind of give that sense of breadth about what, what what's happening with what, what that means? Yeah, to clarify for folks who are not familiar with the um, Civil Rights Act, so the Title VI complaint is basically a civil rights complaint to determine whether a disparate impact has occurred on a particular community on the basis of uh, race. In, in this instance, we have uh, permitted five uh, power plants uh, with varying types of fuel, all in a single neighborhood, Brandywine, uh, basically. Chalk Point's a plant that's been there for some time, but there are also four additional plants that are also either in the pipeline or being planned or that have already been issued permits by the state. The Tuxton Riverkeeper, which is very grassroots, and we try to do what we call representative environmentalism. We represent the concerns, environmental concerns of the communities we serve. So we joined with citizens in Brandywine to file a complaint about the state's approval um, of these globally, all of these plants. And I will point out that in the process of approving them, the state has a tendency, has a protocol that looks at each of these applications in isolation. They don't look at cumulative impact. So the mere fact that you're building four other plants doesn't mean that the state looks at that factor when they're reviewing a single permit at all. And, and that's very troublesome and very problematic for local citizens who inherit the burdens that come with industrializing a rural area, a relatively uh, lower income area, and an area that happens to be 75% African American uh, in population. Uh, and to me, that's like lightning striking five times. Uh, and this was a recourse available to citizens under the law that I'm not sure if it'll actually change the outcome. I'm not sure it's going to stop a plant. That seems pretty unlikely. But we're hoping to tune up the state's review of these permits to look at the bigger picture of them, to look at them in contrast to one another. I think that's a blind spot, a big blind spot, in terms of how the uh, the, uh, state agencies review these permit applications. Well, I want to thank the three of you uh, so much. It's been a great conversation. Bring this out for our listeners. Here's Fred Frederick Tupman. Fred is a Patuxent Riverkeeper, and Phillips, Philip uh, Musagas is uh, legal director for the Potomac Riverkeeper Network. Uh, the men and organizations, along with Food and Water Watch, who originally brought the suit um, that led to the uh, ruling that Brian Frost, Attorney General of the State of Maryland, who had earlier brought to court. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to have you with us. Thanks for thank you. We're about to talk to Jaslina Graywall, who is a writer for Yes Magazine, Brown Girl Magazine, um, and has a lot to say about a lot of different issues. And one of the things we discovered about her in Yes Magazine, one of our partners often here on the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, was a piece she wrote called Urban Foraging, Weeds That You Can Eat. And Jaslina Graywall, welcome. Good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites. Thank you. I'm so glad to um, thank you for having me Good to have you. here today. So this this is interesting. I, I love especially the the artwork that went with it that uh, that Jennifer Luxton did about uh, the, the weeds coming up out of the sidewalk. This is not yeah, your, it's this, quite this is not your typical foraging we're talking about here. No, um, <laughs> so it's urban foraging. So um, and sometimes we do see those weeds actually literally growing out of the sidewalk, um, and they can grow anywhere. So. Um, they're growing all around us in our cityscapes um, and stuff like that. So, yeah, the illustration, it's actually, it's um, its quite beautiful, but it's also quite realistic, I would say. So how did you, first, before we get into the, the things you discovered in this, and, and uh, um, uh, how did you get into this? I mean, how did you even start to write about this? Um, so my, uh, one of my editors actually uh, pitched an idea to me, and she said, um, I would love to write something about urban foraging. And my first idea was food, and I didn't realize that foraging was all-encompassing. Um, it's, it can You can use plants for so much more than food and nutrition, but I think um, food and eating and dining is so much part of our lifestyles, and that's just where I went to in the first. That was just where my mind went. And she was like, okay, well, let's, let's just go with it. And... Um, I don't even, I would identify myself as someone who um, every day when I go out seeks to, okay, I'm going to pick this plant and this plant. But sometimes when I'm walking around, I'll notice, oh, okay, there's this, it, this seems, it seems like this, this plant is growing, it, it's around a lot. I wonder what this is. So I get curious. 
and so I want to learn more. And I think a lot of people have that about them. Um, and so I think that's <laughs> it's like sprouted where it started from. Um, so yeah, there's, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but there's, I definitely, I think there's an interest there. So you, you talk about a woman in this piece called, uh, whose name is Melanie Barras Herrera, who wrote the book, The Front yeah. Yard Forger. Um, yeah. So talk about, I mean, so talk about what you found. What did you discover? Um, so these are the, a few of the plants um, in the article are from um, that book. And um, she writes about, she writes about, um, she goes into it pretty in depth, like the history behind the plant, um, how to use it, where it grows. And so a lot of the research I did was from that book. And so then when I found a few of those plants, I kind of went my own way and um, started kind of looking into, okay, what are the plants that I see around? What are some plants that grow everywhere? And so then I added a couple that um, I just noticed were growing around me. Um, But definitely her book, I think, was the starting point for sure. And so that is where um, I think most of the research was done. So let's talk a bit about what you found here. So you found these plants in some of the things that, that, um, uh, that you have in lawns and lots and garden soil. And let's let's take a couple of them here, like like lemon balm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, and where you find it growing? And have you tried it? Um, yeah, I did actually try it uh, a couple of times. Uh, the first time was a long time ago. I was a camp counselor, and um, one of our activities was actually um, urban foraging for food use as food and we uh, mixed it in a salad we added some berries to it and it turned out really tasty um (laughs) and then yeah and the second time i was walking around with my mom outside and she noticed it growing and so it's stuff like that i'll I'll be with my friends and family and stuff and they'll notice things and i'll be like wow i wonder i wonder how they knew that and so i think once you kind of start like noticing and talking to people it's whoa people actually know a lot about the stuff people are actually tuned in it doesn't like a lot of urban people actually and so um yeah i've lemon balm i definitely have fried uh plantain i've had chickweed i've had those are all um also plants i talk about um lamb's quarter no mallow baby um i don't know because a lot of i'm around i guess it's there's been instances where i've been around people who are like oh yeah i just picked out this out of my garden or i saw it's growing on the sidewalk and I just decided to try it. And so a lot of people will be like really spontaneous that way too. Um, so yeah, definitely have had lemon balm and a few other other ones. And they all work very well. All tasty, all good garnishes, everything. You can lemon balm helps people with, with agitation related to Alzheimer's disease. All these things that these healing qualities were really interesting. Yeah. Um, so that's another thing that um the book talked about as well um, the front yard forager um, re- went really in depth into those um, uses and um, the benefits and um, I think that's where field guides and books can really come in handy and also just talking to people and the experiences they've had and how they feel um, how they feel when they're preparing and cooking and eating um, that's also just a good way to notice okay what is this what is this plant doing for me? Now, I don't know if you've heard this before or not, but I, I learned this from, from my producer here that plantain, the one that, that you can pick through summer and fall that that that, uh, that, to, that people use um, uh, for soothing toothaches, coughs, and sore throats, and use for tea and drizzle with oil and bake as chips, as you wrote, that, it, yeah. that it's known as the white man's footprint? Yeah. That, um, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think that is how um, indigenous people described it. Um, right. Yeah, and so that's where. It, so it's the it's the Latin word for for sole of the foot. Sole of the foot, um, and, and the and the and the Puritans brought it over, and it just kind of went everywhere, and they it was just called. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and that's a lot. A lot of weeds start out if someone brings it over. And then it just goes crazy. So are we saying that all these weeds, in spite of them being good for you, are also colonialist weeds? <laughs> yeah, probably. 
basically. Or people travel and then they bring stuff in with them or feed will stick to your clothes and stuff like that. And so plants can colonize in so many ways and ways that we might not even be um, aware of. So definitely, yeah. So we're going to link to this article so people can see the pictures because this is the time uh, for picking chickweed. Oh, okay, great. Right? Yes. It's fall? Yeah, it is. Actually, yeah, fall, yeah. We're just coming into fall, yeah. And uh, people can use it like a, for, for sandwiches and salads and flushes vitamins and minerals through your body. I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah, and so um, sometimes when, we're, when, you're, when you're eating these plants, you're not noticing, okay, this is what it's doing for my body. Or maybe you're more into the taste and stuff like that. And um, so it's just it's interesting to go a little bit more in depth and see, okay, what is, I, I wonder what are the benefits of this? And there's so many benefits and so many things that we eat. And of course, plants. Um, I think it's intuitive. People kind of know, okay, like your vegetables and your fruits and your greens, it has to be good for you in some way. Um, and so that was really fun about doing this was researching what, what in what way can this benefit us? Um, well, there, I mean, there is a lot to learn from this. I mean, I, in, in serious, I mean, when you renewing the, the end of the season for one of the plants you covered is lamb's quarter. Um, yeah. I found that fascinating. I started reading about it a little bit more after I looked at your article. I mean, and as you wrote about it, it's related to quinoa, that it's a substitute for wheat. It's, they think it has more calcium and protein than spinach. In yeah. A, a, right? Yeah, that one really stood out to me, too. Um, I was like, Wow. Um, I would never think that about just a weed that I saw around. Um, and then I started to wonder, well, how come some of these, at least in my experience, how come they're not more popular? How come I don't hear people talk about them? Um, and so, I, yeah, I think there is a lot of learning to be had um, from it. And um, when you get to know even a few plants, you can go out and... Um, start to be more informed and connected in that way and start diversifying your palate as far as food goes. And yeah, there's just so much that you can do. There's so many benefits and um, a lot of standout weeds. Um, I guess that word weed doesn't really, it kind of has a connotation of it's bad and it's annoying. Yeah. um, Well, what you've given us here is is a chance to kind of look at what things are weeds from plantain to chickweed, yeah. mallow, lemon balm, lamb's quarter that are actually we can eat and use as teas, and and they're all around us. And so, you know, that I think that's just it's just fascinating. Um, yeah. If you ever get to Baltimore, you're going to have to whip up a salad for us all, so we can see how good this actually tastes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I think you can add it. You can get really creative. I think that's like the the good and fun part about it. And cooking and preparing food is also it's. It can be very creative. It can be very intuitive. You can go with, um, okay, how does it how does it look on my plate? How does it taste? There's so many parts to it, so you can have so much fun with it. It can be absolutely very, very tasty and also very, very good for you. And I think that's cool. Well, this has been great. I, I appreciate you taking the time with us today, and it's a really wonderful little article. I really enjoyed it. Um, to me as well. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. Jaslina Graywall uh, wrote this piece in Yes Magazine, Urban Foraging Weeds You Can Eat, and uh, she writes for Yes and Brown Girl Magazine. We'll be linking to this article and also linking to, you can see her other work in other piece, places. She writes about lots of stuff. Jaslina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Welcome back. I'm Mari here for Sound Bites on the Mark Steiner Show. And I'm about to talk to Scott Dance. Scott writes about the environment and weather for the Baltimore Sun and is a regular here on Soundbites. And Scott, welcome back to the show. Thanks. So you wrote last week about unhealthy levels of fecal bacteria in streams and rivers and swimming holes around Maryland. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. I mean, this is something that... uh people, you know, uh, environmentalists and scientists, they're always kind of aware of, but, uh, you know, finding, uh, investigating it uh, in, in individual creeks and streams and that sort of thing doesn't always happen. So um, Chesapeake Bay Foundation did that um, this summer, and they collected samples from 40 different streams in the region, uh, basically uh, Baltimore County, Carroll County, Frederick, Harford, Howard, 
uh, you know, some popular places that people go swimming um, in like Patapsco Valley State Park or uh, kind of like urban, uh, like the Carroll Creek in, in Frederick or or, you know, obviously more urban than that, like the Gwynn's Falls and, uh, in Baltimore, and, uh, you know, found unhealthy levels of fecal bacteria that would, you know, indicate uh, that these waters are not safe for swimming, uh, particularly after big rainstorms. Um, that, that's when, you know, it's the biggest risk, and that's when they took a lot of their samples. So uh, just showing that, uh, you know, this... Uh, it's not just uh, as the uh, Allison Prost from the uh, Bay Foundation said. This isn't just like an abstract thing where we, you know, we know that uh, there's lots of contamination in waterways around there. But like this is, you know, in these specific waterways that the people like to enjoy, uh, they they don't realize the the bacteria that they're you know that they're putting themselves in contact with. So how do these waterways get so polluted after storms? Uh, I mean, it's really just, you know, the runoff washes what what is out there. And, and uh, well, and in Baltimore, we know we have issues with, you know, a leaky sewer system and, and failing infrastructure. So, uh, you know, that's, that's certainly the problem uh, here in the city, but, but elsewhere as well. Um, it, it's just, uh, but it's also... Um, you know other other types of runoff. I mean, they were looking mostly at this fecal bacteria, but but other types of runoff. You know, nitrogen and and phosphorus. You know, even from animal waste from from farms. Uh, you know, using fertilizer or that have, um, you know, uh, livestock um, that that's contributing to it as well. Um, and so yeah, when it rains, just everything that's out there gets gets washed in and so that's really when I guess you would think oh the, you know the rain washes everything clean but but it really makes the the waterways that are dirtiest uh, when you know before before it can all be kind of flushed down the bay so how are, how is the state of Maryland and local governments dealing with stormwater runoff uh, yeah I mean this this is really the focus of you know the what people when people talk about the rain tax and the the efforts that that is funding, you know, this is what we're talking about. And, and a lot of people don't make that connection. But, uh, you know, the, every every county in Baltimore City is under, you know, requirements from the EPA and, you know, MDE to improve how much, or, you know, basically to, to decrease the amount of runoff that, that occurs when it rains and also to clean up, you know, do what they can to clean up the runoff that is making it from all these, you know, roadways and parking lots and all of that into into waterways. Um, so, you know, whether it's like I, I followed along with some some work in Baltimore earlier this year where they were really just like expanding like the the little uh, wells in the sidewalks that trees grow out of, making them a little bit bigger. So it's just like that much more dirt that's exposed instead of pavement. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also like putting in new ones and planting new trees because a tree canopy, you know, that also helps um, because if water's hitting a tree and, you know, staying on a tree's leaves or, or you know, and soaking into its roots, like that's more water that isn't running off um, quickly, you know, into the gutter. Uh, you know, things like people talk about these rain gardens, just like, you know, different landscaping, uh, but it's more than just cosmetic landscaping, but these, uh, you know, uh, little little gardens, little, um, you know, areas of grass or, or other, well, not even just grass, but uh, native, native plants, because that's more important than, I mean, that's better at, at soaking up the rain than, than grass is. But, um, you know, those sorts of things all help, uh, you know, keep, lim limit the amount of water and, and cleaning the water that, that is going into gutters and, and, you know, straight to the bay. So. so you also wrote about traces of amphetamines and methamphetamines in the Gwynn Falls. Um, so why are they there and what kind of effect are they having on the ecosystem? Yeah, so that is, uh, again, mostly going back to the, the problems with the sewer systems that I mentioned. And, uh, you know, we know that when when these sewer systems fail, that means sewage is washing into 
the waterways and that's what that's what the you know the Baltimore Department of Public Works has to publicly report when it when it occurs at a you know above a certain level uh, but what is not necessarily considered or, or realized within that is you know what also within this waste that we're sending down our toilet is is you know chemical traces of all the substances that we're we're putting in our bodies and uh, you know using on our bodies and that sort of thing so um, yeah there's so some researchers and this also it's not necessarily a new finding that that there are residues of pharmaceuticals and personal care products in our waterways uh, you know that again has also been generally known it's been measured in other places but um, these researchers who have been studying the Gwynn's Falls specifically for, for almost two decades as a little kind of a laboratory for, for urban water quality. Uh, they found, yeah, traces of the amphetamines, and so they sort of measured the level of those amphetamines, and then they, in a lab, sort of isolated the effect of that same level of amphetamines on a stream system, and uh, they, they have these, like, artificial streams that they can test this with and sort of isolate that variable, and they found... Basically, that that these in these streams, uh, it changes the makeup of what they call the um, what is the term? Uh, it, it's basically just the um, the the layer of film. I guess they call it biofilms. It's the layer of algae and bacteria that kind of makes rocks and and you know the mud bottom of a stream so slippery. It changes like the makeup of those. So you've got different bacteria than you would otherwise have. Um, it also stunts the photosynthesis process in the algae, so that's affecting, you know, the oxygen being put back into the water, which, you know, affects all the animals. It also, they found, sped up the growth of flies. They, like, went through their um, metamorphosis more quickly. So all of these things were things where they couldn't, they said they couldn't necessarily make a value judgment and say it's, like, better or worse, but but they could certainly say, you know, there is a clear effect from, you know, people taking prescription drugs that are amphetamines or, or using illegal drugs like methamphetamine on the uh, the ecosystems of these streams and you know they can't necessarily say what what the effect is in the stream you know in the actual stream they know what it is in the lab but like you don't there's so many other factors affecting you know the actual wind falls they can't necessarily say what is happening there but but again it's just important to note that that you know, this is affecting, uh, you know, these, these ecosystems. What are their broader um, findings on the Gwynn Falls? Like, how, how is the Gwynn Falls doing more generally? Um, I mean, it's definitely, you know, one of the more polluted uh, tributaries. Uh, I mean, really, you know, we're, we're talking about the, the Gwynn Falls and the Jones Falls as the main tributaries to to the Patapsco, um, you know, apart from the, the Patapsco River itself, um, but but like they're both kind of uh, well, you know, in the Jones Falls we're talking about the Inner Harbor, and then the the Gwynn's Falls leads into the, I guess it's the Middle Branch. Um, but so it's um, yeah, I mean it's not doing great. Uh, I mean if you I I've always uh, gone for runs on the Gwynn's Falls Trail and you know noticed the smell of sewage and. Mm-hmm seen, you know, mattresses and all sorts of things in the stream there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I guess maybe for that reason, it's, it's a good laboratory for them because it is such a, you know, uh, it's, it's an urban waterway that is obviously very much affected by its, uh, its community around it and shows a lot of evidence of that. They've done similar research using this stream looking at uh, the effects of antibiotics and antibacterial soaps. And antihistamines. So, so in similar ways, these mm-hmm. chemicals and and um, agents have have effects on the on the ecosystem. So, switching gears to a different body of water, it's obviously been a hot summer, and when it gets hot outside, the dead zones form in the Chesapeake Bay. What exactly are dead zones, and how much of a problem are they this year? Yeah. So, I mean, this is all it's all connected, really. Um, the dead zones are uh, areas that have um, little or no oxygen, uh, in, you know, in the water. Um, and they, they are created when all these nutrients from sewage and from, um, 
you know, fertilizers and all that sort of thing, they they feed these algae blooms that form, and and then when the algae blooms die and sink to the bottom, when they decompose, that process strips oxygen from the water. So uh, it can lead to fish kills and, um, you know, just generally harm, um, you know, animals in, in the bay. And... Uh, the uh, and that's not to mention also the the algae blooms can block oxygen from reaching like uh, grasses and stuff which also are you know putting oxygen into the uh into the bay so if they're not getting you know the sunlight for that photosynthesis then that's also less oxygen so anyway uh i'd written about it a couple times this summer because it this started out really well this summer it was one of the lowest dead zones for uh for like early June than they had basically ever seen, uh, you know, since the, I think the mid eighties and, uh, it, it didn't quite continue in July. Things got bad. Um, it was like after being basically, I think it was like second best since 1985 and early June by late July, it was the seventh worst wow. since 1985. So, uh, you know, and a lot of this is the factor of weather, um, and, uh, you know, because, again, like what we were talking about before, this is all about, like, what what is being washed into the bay. So if there's a lot of rain, there's a lot, you know, more stuff being washed in the bay. Um, and so if it's really dry, a lot of times you'll see um, better conditions. And, and it was pretty wet in July and August. Um, I think June was about average, but um, nothing, nothing crazy. But... Uh, yeah, so now in August, I think it's back to about average. So it it, uh, it kind of ebbs and flows, but it's all tied to, to these issues that, you know, we're talking about with, uh, you know, trying to limit what is flowing into the bay when it rains. Uh, you know, that's the whole idea behind what's known as the Chesapeake Bay TMDL, or people call it the pollution diet for the bay that was set uh, a few years ago and really kind of guides what uh what's going to clean up the bay going forward because you know we're not going to stop the rain from falling and washing stuff into the bay uh so we just we need to focus on what what is on the ground and what is you know leaking through our sewer system and and that sort of thing to uh to help clean up the bay i've been talking to scott dance who writes about the environment and weather for the baltimore sun and scott thank you so much for joining us again yeah thank you the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our engineer is Andrea Melton. Our interns are Morgan Barber and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Wall Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. The podcast of Mark Steiner Show, share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org, or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>